Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. Man, I tell you what, you come to church and you hear God's word and you learn a new vocabulary word, right? I mean, man, we're, we're rocking along, yeah. So avarice just simply means extreme greed for, for either money or possessions, And as we're going to see as we get into this, Paul addresses that very thing towards the end. But first he's going to to start off and he's going to talk about authority. Now, these might seem like kind of random uh, things that that he's dealing with here. Keep in mind, he's, he's writing this letter to Timothy, who's an elder at the church in Ephesus, and dealing with very specific uh, issues that Timothy's facing in this church. And so it's, at times, Paul's letters uh, seem, I don't know if schizophrenic is the right word, but he's kind of jumping from issue to issue because he has a lot of things that, that he needs to cover. And so in this case, um, this might kind of seem like that's what he's doing. He's, he's been addressing uh, really the household of God. He told us how we are to address uh, older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. And he took this family language within the, the body of Christ, within the local church. And then he turned our attention in uh, chapter 5 to what that looks like to take care of older women who are widows and, and how the elders are to conduct themselves. And now he kind of, at the beginning of chapter 6, he'll wrap up we're talking about this family language and he'll address uh, slaves and masters, which were a part of both of them, together in this church in Ephesus. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll get into um, the, the false teaching that was going on in, in Greece. So that's where we're headed. All right, so let's stand together as we read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Stand for the reading of the word of God. The word of the Lord says, All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, So that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing... We will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your people in a local body known as a church. We pray this morning you would use your word to shape us and mold us into the men and women of Christ that you would have us be. 
So where there are actions or attitudes that need to change, would, would you chisel those out with your word this morning? Speak through me as I proclaim the words that you've given to us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now we start right off the bat and Paul dives right in and talks about uh, slaves and their masters, slaves and their owners. Now obviously this is a, this is a huge point of discussion uh, given our own nation's history with slavery and, and quite frankly given our own denomination's history with slavery. When the Southern Baptist Convention was formed back in the 1840s, it was formed... Um, because there were a group of Baptists in the South who wanted to continue worshiping God and wanted to have a convention, but they also wanted to keep their slaves. So that's where the root of our convention came from, was uh, folks who, who were followers of Christ, who claimed to be followers of Christ, who wanted to keep their slaves and didn't want the Northerners telling us what we could and couldn't do. Um, now, we, our, our convention has repented of that and, and, and has come back and said, you know, we, we, we now recognize slavery for the, for the evil that it was. Um, but in, in our nation's history and in our Southern Baptist Convention's history, these are things that we have to wrestle with. And so anytime Paul addresses slaves, the, the question comes up, well, what's, what exactly is he saying? And one of the things that we have to understand is that slavery in the first century Roman Empire looked very different than what we know happened here in the United States uh, with the African slave trade. It was very different. In fact, um, in, in the first century Roman Empire, most of the time, slavery existed um, as, a, as a way of protecting and taking care of those who couldn't protect and take care, take care of themselves, almost like an, an indentured servitude. Someone would fall on hard times. Maybe they didn't have the money to, to pay bills or... Um, their, their, their means of, um, of providing for their family, lost a job, they, they didn't have any other way to provide for their family, so they would uh, become a slave to someone who would then, uh, who they, would, they would go and live with and work for. Now, it's not to say that this wasn't an evil, and, and in fact, um, slaves had little to no rights. They, they were property, um, and so what you had is, as Christianity begins to take over the, the Roman Empire and, and spread throughout the known world, you had slaves and their masters who were coming to faith in Christ. And in a local church, you, you would have gathered together on a day of worship slaves along with their masters. And some people have asked, well, why doesn't Paul just come out and, and call out slavery for the evil that, that it is? Instead, what he does is he subverts slavery and and in fact, even in the United States, the words of Paul were used to abolish slavery. Because Paul brought a completely different view. Rather, rather than slaves being treated as property, the gospel treats them as people. People who have a responsibility. This is where, where Paul goes. So what he, what he talks about right off the bat is as followers of Christ, we must respect authority. Now, keep in mind, he's talking here about slaves respecting their masters, okay? So, so when we talk authority, keep in mind, this is the group of people Paul's talking to. This is what he says, verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. 
Now let's stop right there for, for just a second. Did you just see that he said that the way believing slaves treated their masters would say something about the God they believe in? Even in, in an institution as backward as slavery was and still is in many cases around the world, Paul would say to these slaves who are believers, you, you have a choice in how you treat your master. You, you, you have a choice in how you treat that, the, the, the authority that's been placed over you for this time. You might not like it, you might not agree with it, but you still have a choice as to how you respond. And then we get a, a glimpse into what was happening in verse 2. He says, Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them, because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. And so, again, when we read Paul's letters, oftentimes it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. So we have to kind of take his words and, and then figure out what was happening on the other side. And, and apparently what was happening is uh, slaves, Christian slaves who had Christian masters, were not showing their masters the same respect as they would show to a non-believer because they were brothers in Christ. And Paul says, actually, this is backwards. You should show them more respect. You should treat them more kindly because you are both followers of Christ and because you are brothers in Christ. Now, obviously, we, we live in a world where slavery still exists. Um, and, and as, as followers of Christ, we should fight against that where, where humans are treated as property. We should fight against human trafficking wherever it exists. Now, if we bring that a little bit closer to home, most of us are not going to find ourselves in a slavery environment. <laughs> now, you might say, well, you've never been to my job. But, but in most cases, okay, you're not going to find yourself in, 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 a, in, in a slavery situation. And so for us, the, the application, the closest application we have is to that of employee and employer. As believers, we're to show respect for those whom God has placed in authority over us. So listen, is your boss overbearing? No, don't, don't point fingers, okay? No, no, like I'm not long for raised hands. That's a rhetorical question. If, is your boss overbearing? What, what do you do? You show them respect. Children are, in, are your parents unreasonable at times. Again, don't point fingers. I'm not looking. What, what do you do? You show them respect. See, in your work environment, in your home, you, you may not have control over a whole lot of things. I'm sure all of us have thought at one point or another, man, if I was in charge, I would, I would do things a little bit differently. This is not the way I would run this company. Well, you're probably not in charge. And, and your circumstances have no bearing over how you respond to the authority that God's placed over you. You might have the worst boss that's ever lived. It's possible. I think I've worked for a couple of those people. But we're still called upon to show respect out of... because of what God has done for us. Now... We're going to talk a lot this morning about identity. And, and I really do. I believe that this goes back to where we find our identity. Because listen, if your identity is in your work, you're going to be threatened when your boss isn't all that, they, that you think they should be. Or when you're not shown the proper amount of appreciation for all that you do. If your identity is in what you do, that'll, that'll be a threat to your person. 
But if your identity is in Christ, you, you can suffer even meanness and unfairness and still show respect. We're going to talk more about identity. We'll, we'll get back to that. The Bible does say a couple of things about how we are to work as, as people, all right? So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, Paul's writing to the same church in Ephesus. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. And then Colossians three twenty three. you'll know this one. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Here's something that will change your perspective on work, and that is that you don't just work for a boss, you don't just work for a paycheck, you ultimately work for the Lord. If you go back and read Genesis, work is not something that was given as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. It was given as part of God's blessing to creation in Genesis 1. Work is a part of God's original design. Now, Genesis 3, God said that work would get a whole lot harder. And then suddenly for, for Adam in the garden, uh, the, the land would start to fight back against his efforts. So work was affected in the fall, but it was not a result of the fall. It was part of God's original creation. As, as, the followers, as followers of Christ, let us be people who respect authority, who refuse to take place in an office place gossip running the boss down but people who show respect to those whom God has placed over us. All right, secondly, we are to remain teachable. Let's pick up in the second half of verse 2. Paul writes, Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, and who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now he kind of shifts gears here, but, but I would say this, this all fits together. It's all together for a reason. So, so as followers of Christ, we must respect authority, but we also have to remain teachable. Now, one of the marks of the false teachers that were infiltrating Ephesus, even as some who had served as elders in this congregation, is that they had taken the gospel and they had added some things to it. And they were then telling people, well, if you, if you really want to follow Christ, you have to not just, not just trust in Christ, not just put your faith in him, but you also have to do these things or don't do these things. So, as simple as what we saw in, in chapter 1, some of them were forbidding marriage. Well, if you really want to follow after Christ, you should, you should stay single, um, because you're not going to be able to follow Christ as a, as a married person. Uh, you should abstain from certain foods. Well, if you eat that, you're not going to be a very good Christian. I've, I've kind of always joked, like, right, like if you, you tell me I can't follow Christ because uh, if, if I eat bacon, we're going to have words. All right, we're going to have some issues. <laughs> And they were constantly quarreling. They weren't teachable. But they were quite sure of what they believed, even if it contradicted God's word. See, listen, folks, arrogance in the life of a believer is dangerous. These false teachers thought they had it all figured out. But, But in the process, Paul says that what's actually happened is they've become conceited 
And he says they understand nothing. Now, now here's the danger to, to this side of things, is that none of us is immune to thinking we're smarter than we actually are. Right? Like, like there's always going to be someone who you feel like you're smarter than. Um, Noah's not in here, which means I can pick on him, and, and he's, okay? Um, Noah just turned 11 a week ago Friday. All right? If you've ever had an 11-year-old, I think you'll understand this. He's the smartest person he's ever met. Okay? He's absolutely convinced that he's right. And, 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 and Michelle, as she, as she homeschools, and, and me, as we've, as we've tried to kind of correct him in some areas, like, we, we've learned, like, he has to figure out that he's wrong on his own, because obviously we're dumb, right? I mean, we can't teach him anything. Now, it's a frustrating part of life, but, but it's, it, it's a part of, of, of growing and learning that you're not the smartest person who's ever lived, right? Now, it's one thing for that to happen in an 11-year-old. I have ways, we have ways we can correct him, like still showing that we, can, we have authority to take everything he's ever loved away from him. Um, the problem is when you run into that, not in an 11-year-old, but in a 40-year-old, who's still the smartest person who, whom they've ever met. And it's even more dangerous when you encounter that in the life of a believer. Listen, I, I've, I've been a believer for almost 30 years. I became a follower of Christ when I, when I was six, so sometime in the next couple of years, I'll, I'll cross that 30-year mark of being a believer. Do you know what I'm learning? I'm learning there's still a whole lot of areas in, in the Bible where my thinking and, and, and Scripture don't always line up. And as I've said before, and when it comes to the life of our church and when it comes to the life of believers, if, if my thinking and the Bible's teaching are, don't, don't mesh, it's not up to me to make the Bible say what I want it to say. It's up to me to correct my thinking to become more biblical. And if we don't, if if we're not teachable, if we're not humble and teachable as followers of Christ, the result of that uh, is this. From these, in in verse 4, he says, From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now, God forbid that we live that way as believers, and, and, and God forbid that we allow our churches to become places that are marked by these qualities rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And yet, if you've, if you've had any experience in, in multiple churches, again, don't, no, no pointing fingers, but how often do these become Marks of a church. Envy, envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, constant disagreement. And how many times are these words used to describe people who claim to be followers of Christ? So, so how do we avoid this? As I said, I don't think any of us is, um, is immune to this. We... we we can all fall into this trap of arrogance. So, so what do we do with that? Um, again, Scripture would, would have words for us here. Titus 3.9 says, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. 
avoid worthless arguments. Philippians 2, 3, and 11, I think, is one of the most humbling passages in all of Scripture. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, now those are the words that I put in your outline. Those are the verses, but Paul continues. In verse 5, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This also goes back to identity, right? So, so if your identity is wrapped up in how good you are, you're probably going to become arrogant. If everyone else would just realize how awesome I am, it would solve all of our problems here. But rather, if, if my identity is in Christ, then that allows me to remain teachable. If my identity is, is understanding that Christ gave his life for me even while I was still a sinner and I still have a long way to go before I'm, I'm shaped into the image that Christ wants me to be shaped into and shaped into his image, that, that allows me to remain teachable. It allows me to realize I'm not as awesome as I think I am. And so when, when other people recognize that, it's not a threat to me, but it's, it's confirming, yes, you know, when someone comes to you with a mistake or some way that you've hurt them rather than getting defensive because they just don't understand how great you are, it, it, it causes you to be humble. I'm, I'm so sorry. You're right. I'm probably wrong in this, and, and there's probably a whole lot more that I'm wrong about as well. People of followers of Christ must remain teachable. And then finally, followers of Christ must resist greed. Pick up in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many griefs. You know, I think verse 10 is one of the most oft, often um, misquoted verses in all of the Bible. Because we often will hear, well, money is the root of all evil. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not true. M- money's amoral. It, it's just a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. What Paul says is dangerous is the love of money. And without, without moving too far away from the text, because I don't want to try to make the text go somewhere that it wouldn't go, but, but I would say very closely tied into the love of money is the love of stuff. And again, money, stuff is not inherently wrong, but if it becomes our focus, things can go very wrong very quickly. 
In fact, Paul here says that those who want to be rich, in verse 9, fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. How often have we heard people who um, went all in on some get-rich-quick scheme and ended up being ruined financially before that or, or through that process? You know, I think, I think there's a danger. I think there's a great danger in, in, in getting what you want without having to wait for it. Now, listen, I'm the most impatient, like, person ever, okay? That's why... <laughs> we've kind of made a running joke out of, you know, for me, uh, Christmas season begins this Thursday, right? November 1st. Um, you know, if you're content with just celebrating Jesus's birth for a month, that's between you and God. Um, I, I, I stretch it out a little bit. Further. But, but I'm, I'm extremely impatient. So like as soon as, as there are presents under the tree, I'm going, what's that? Do you like the shake test? You know, the smell test? What? What is this marvelous, wonderful gift that has my name on it? But doesn't that make you appreciate it more? Like when you've been waiting for something, when you, when you finally get it, it makes you appreciate it a little bit more. And, and look, we talk about this, this desire, this love of money and this love of stuff. And soon we'll be bombarded with the commercials. Right? You'll have, you'll have the family, uh, the, the, the commercial where the wife gets a new Lexus on Christmas morning with a bow all tied on it. And I think I've said before, I don't know about you, uh, Michelle's reaction would be very different than the one that's on the commercial. <laughs> We're going to be bombarded with, with people who are literally banking on the fact that you're going to see something on TV and go, my life is suddenly meaningless without this thing. And we've bought into this hook, line, and sinker, right? So, so not just a love of money, but a love of stuff. Listen to these uh, statistics. This is uh, according to Value Penguin, which is a website that kind of measures um, Americans' spending. And these are updated as of October of this year. So these are current statistics. The average American household debt is $5,700. Now, the average for... Uh, American households who carry over their credit card debt, who don't pay it off at the end of the month, but who carry it over, is $9,333. 41.2% of all households carry some sort of credit card debt. Here's, here was the statistic that stopped me. Households with the lowest net worth Meaning they have, when you add up their assets and add up their, what they owe on, on, in debt, uh, households with the lowest, meaning either zero or negative um, over a, um, net worth, hold an average of $10,308 in credit card debt. Households with the lowest net value have the highest credit card debt. found that really interesting. The Northeast and the West Coast hold the highest average credit card debt, both averaging over $8,000. But New Mexico is right there. We are just under $8,000, $79.52. Have we not bought into this lie that, that stuff will fill this hole? And how's that working for us? Well, it's working great because I just need to go out and get more stuff. The stuff that I already have isn't satisfying me. I know. I'll go get more stuff. Do you know what the definition of insanity is? It's doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. 
I don't, have, I don't have enough stuff. This hasn't made me happy. More stuff will make me happy. This last raise, I, this last raise I, I got didn't make me happy. I don't, the next raise will make me happy. The last three marriages didn't make me happy. I know, I just need another marriage. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I came across an article this morning. Um... So I was scrolling through Twitter. Uh, scrolling through Twitter on Sunday mornings is an interesting thing because sometimes I find things that are helpful and sometimes I just find things that make me mad and I start off my, my morning. Uh, this morning I, I came across one that was really helpful. Um, an article about um, a gentleman in West Virginia who won a $340 million Powerball uh, lottery back in 2002. He and his wife and, uh, were, were raising their granddaughter had a business, and, and they, they weren't rolling in money, but they, they were doing okay. And when he first won the lottery, um, it seemed like he, he was going to be one of those success stories, like one, one of those who, who held it all together. He said, the very first thing I'm going to do is tithe with it. I'm, I'm going to pay off some debt. I'm going to take care of some very special people in, in, in our community who've really helped us along. His life began to spin out of control. His granddaughter ended up being hooked on drugs and having an unlimited supply of money, meaning she had an unlimited supply of drugs. Within a couple of years, she had overdosed and died. And this man who had a, who had a, who had a good reputation as a businessman because of um, some things that he had gotten into Even the money that he tithed to his church, they built a brand new sanctuary. Said people in the community said, I'm not going to go into that building and put my rear end in a seat that he paid for. Again, was it the money that was inherently evil? No, I don't think so. I think the problem is that he and those around him, around him found their identities in the money that they had. Just as arrogance can be a destructive force in the life of a believer, so can greed. This is what the Bible would, would tell us. Proverbs 28, 25. A greedy person stirs up conflict, but whoever trusts in the Lord will prosper. In the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus talked more about money than any other topic that he addressed. So I think Jesus understood something about the way we would see money and possessions. And maybe what's, what's more, one of his most well-known teachings out of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, we've talked a lot about identity this morning. As we wrap up, this, this too is an identity issue. Where are you finding your identity? Is it in the stuff that you have? Is it in how much money you make? The car that you drive? The house that you live in? The cool gadgets that you, that you own? Because listen, if, if you're finding your identity in any of that, none of it's going to be enough. 
you'll find yourself going down this black hole of greed. I've always got to have more. I've always got to make more. I've always got to drive a, a nicer car than the folks across the street. But if my identity's in Christ, then suddenly everything that I own becomes a tool to further his kingdom. We've talked about, about three areas this morning. We talked about authority. We talked about humility. And how we as believers are to remain teachable. And we talked about greed. And as I said, the gospel affects all of this. The gospel frees us to show respect even when it's not returned. It, it frees us to show humility and to remain teachable. It frees us to resist greed. So this morning I would simply ask, how is the gospel shaping your identity? When you wake up in the morning, are you concerned about how people are going to see you at work? Are you concerned how you're going to live for Christ that day? Are you concerned with how you can leverage the position the neighborhood, the resources you've been given to further God's kingdom and share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you so much for the opportunity to gather. And God, we know there are a lot of different ways that Satan tries to attack us, a lot of different ways the world tries to um, break us down and, and distract us from our relationship with you. And so this morning, if, there, if there's a resistance against authority that you've placed in our lives, would you remind us that you've called us to show respect to those authorities? As, as Paul wrote in, in Romans, no authority exists except that which has been ordained by God. And so even where we face ungodly authority, whether that's in, in a government or in a in a job, maybe for some of us that, that even looks like in, in a house, will you show us how we can show respect to even those that we disagree with? Will you allow us to be people who are being constantly shaped and molded by your word and who are humble enough, humble enough to know that we don't have it all together? But to know that you're through your word and through relationships with other believers, you're chiseling us into the masterpiece that you want us to be, where we reflect the glory of God to those around us. And will you help us to not be so focused on stuff? Even this season, as we're about to be bombarded with ads throughout the holiday season, as we, as we approach Christmas and New Year's with, with stuff that we just are told we absolutely have to have to, to make our lives full, will you help us to reject those lies and to instead focus on the real reason that we gather to celebrate Christmas? On you who gave everything for us. We thank you so much for your grace and mercy as we stumble in these areas every single day. 
that through your forgiveness, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, we can live not in fear of rejection, but knowing that you love us, that we are forgiven, and that one day we will be the men and women that you want us to be. Men and women who perfectly reflect your glory. Will you help us to experience that here and now in this life? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week.